All right. Uh, I'm, I'm here to talk about uh, building peace in, in Georgia, international uh, organizations and conflict resolution in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. I realized in looking at the program that uh, probably building peace in Georgia should have been in inverted commas, but there we are, um, given recent events. Um, the, if you will, the institutional background to this kind of analysis is pretty simple. If you look at where international organizations involved in security came from, and you take a long perspective, uh, basically there have been various moments, particularly in the 20th century, where uh, people, states, took the view that international organizations were uh, one means of solving the, if you will, the collective action problem of war and therefore producing peace. Now, in thinking about the role of these organizations, regional and universal, in uh, building peace, there are at least two ways of approaching the topic. One is to look at it uh, institutionally and deductively. You take a look at the roles, the organization, the practices, the politics of international institutions, you generate hypotheses, which we love to do in political science, and then you apply them to cases in a sort of top-to-bottom uh, approach. Or you can take a case and see what that case might tell us about the performance and the promise of multilateral institutions, in other words, bottom-up. I have to say, I prefer the second. My case is Georgia. I've been working on Georgia with uh, great pleasure and a fair amount of pain over the years for about 20 years. Um, I want to do four things. One is, uh, first, I guess I should ask, how many in this audience have ever been to Georgia? Oh, thank you, one. All right, uh, with apologies to uh, my friend, uh, I will uh, give a brief introduction on the characteristics of Georgia. Secondly, a background ac uh, account of conflicts. Third, an account of the roles of international organizations in the effort to build peace. And fourth, what lessons we might draw. Um, now, uh, my account, I'm sorry to say, may sound rather uh, harsh. I, I think it's reasonably accurate. Um, but I don't mean uh, to give offense to the huge number of people whom I've known over the years involved in the activities of these organizations who were making a genuinely effort, uh, genuinely, uh, um, a genuine effort to address the real problems of this country and its people. So, context first. Uh, Georgia is, as you know, a successor republic to the Soviet Union. It's a weak state, its elites and its structures had no experience of sovereignty or independent decision making. The society has for the last uh, 6,000 years or so uh, been uh, fragmented along multiple communal lines, uh, which we now call ethnic lines. Um, in 1989, the last Soviet census 70% uh, of the population was ethnically Georgian, 
What that means is not entirely clear because there are substantial fragmented identities amongst the Georgians themselves. In addition, 8% Armenian, 6% Armenian, 6% Russian, 3% Osset, and 1% Abkhaz. So I guess that's a uh, demonstration of the proposition that small groups can create big uh, issues. Um, these uh, multiple communal identities were strengthened in the Soviet era quite deliberately by the Soviet authorities who, who uh, encouraged the development of, uh, um, if you will, diverse identity. Um, and institutionalized it through stru constitutional structures of autonomy. Um, in, in the Georgian case, in South Ossetia, in Abkhazia, and Ajara. <coughs> uh, retrospectively, I think one can conclude that this was a sort of semi-conscious effort to set minority and majority elites against each other in the Union Republics in order to be able to rule more effectively by dividing. These institutional and cultural artifacts were built into a long history of deep grievance between Abkhaz, Osset, and Georgian populations. The second characteristic is the proximity to a large state, Russia, that had its own deep historical role in the region. And I guess, as we saw in August 2008, is not really interested in giving up that uh, role. Uh, a state which uh, evinces an aspiration to primacy throughout what used to be the former Soviet Union, minus the Baltics, we hope. The economy, reasonably poor. It had been highly integrated into the larger Soviet economy when the Soviet Union collapsed. Those markets collapsed, leading to a massive economic crisis that lasted for about nine years. Um, so, conflict in Georgia. One. Uh, well, there, there are basically three dimensions to this issue. One is South Ossetia. Uh, this mini-conflict erupted in 1990, the first time. Uh, Georgia, at the time, was headed for independence under a, an extremist, majoritarian, nationalist, elected government. Um, a government which questioned the legitimacy of the presence of these minorities in Georgia, notably the Ossets. <clears throat> this was a government that was unhappy with the inherited structure of local autonomies in these many regions, inherited from Soviet times. So, not surprisingly, minority elites in these regions were uh, somewhat insecure about their future in a united Georgia, South Ossetia in 1990, its supreme Soviet then uh, voted to leave Georgia and join North Ossetia, which is across the border in the Russian Federation. The Georgian government responded by annulling South Ossetia's status of autonomy, and that basically rolled forward into a two-year uh, conflict until June of 1992, with several hundred deaths, the displacement of 60 to 100,000 people. Um, in June of 1992, there was a ceasefire and cessation of hostilities mediated by the President of Russia, um, and that ceasefire was policed between 1992 and 2008 by a mixed ad hoc peacekeeping force comprising Russians, Georgians, and Ossets. 
the second uh, element of conflict in Georgia was uh, an intra-Georgian conflict. As South Ossetia deteriorated, as the economy declined, <coughs> the state gradually collapsed, the opposition to the sitting government grew a little bit impatient. The Georgian National Guard revolted against it, marched off from South Ossetia to Tbilisi, the capital city, proceeded to shell the center of Tbilisi to the ground, and uh, managed to achieve the departure of the elected president um, in January 1992. He went off first to Chechnya and then to Armenia, and uh, his supporters fomented a rebellion in western Georgia, Mingrelia, in uh, the spring of 1992. Georgian forces shifted their attention to uh, western Georgia um, in a number of punitive expeditions. The rebels took sanctuary in Abkhazia. This gave Georgian forces a reason to go after Abkhazia. The Abkhaz also gave the Georgians a reason. They declared sovereignty in August of 1992. So it's, there are two good reasons to go after the Abkhaz. Uh, the Georgians attacked in August, took Sukhumi. The Abkhaz government fled north, coming back with the support of substantial numbers of Russian volunteers in the spring of 1993. Um, the Georgian military collapsed. Uh, there was a chaotic retreat back into Georgian-held territory, um, and uh, the rebellion in western Georgia then began again, and uh, the Georgian state consequently neared collapse. Georgia requested Russian intervention. Russia intervened, um, stopped the Abkhaz conflict, and uh, suppressed the Mingrel western Georgian rebellion. Consequences, 250,000 refugees uh, into western and central Georgia and also into the Russian Federation, several thousand war deaths. Russia mediated that ceasefire too in April 1994, creating a security zone between the two territories and installing a peacekeeping force nominally under the jurisdiction of the Commonwealth of Independent States, actually Russian. So, so much for the conflicts from 1994 to 2008. They were basically frozen. Uh, there was uh, the sustained effort to resolve them and to reconcile the populations of these regions were stymied for reasons I'm happy to get into in discussion, but not now. Uh, Low-level security incidents persisted uh, along the lines of contact in South Ossetia. Uh, there was a small partisan war of Georgians against the Abkhaz in Abkhazia in the late 1990s. Uh, both uh, Ossad and Abkhaz authorities harassed Georgian civilians in areas under the control of secessionist authorities. Yeah, it was sort of a low-level mess which lasted a very long time and was really rather uh, resistant to, if you will, international organizational treatment. They returned to war in South Ossetia in August 2008, producing a decisive defeat of uh, the Georgian military and effectively its destruction, this time by the Russians. Um, the Georgian military and the Georgian ethnic population was expelled from South Ossetia by Russian forces, who then consolidated a buffer around South Ossetia. 
the Abkhaz took advantage of this to clear the last areas of Abkhazia under Georgian control. Um, the overall effect was another 100, 100 to 120,000 displaced, a ceasefire, an eventual withdrawal of Russian forces from Georgian territory back into these two enclaves, the insertion of an EU monitoring force to monitor the ceasefire. Abkhazia and South Ossetia reiterated their claim to statehood. That claim was then recognized by the Russian Federation and also by uh, Nicaragua for reasons that are not immediately clear to me. Um, anyway, uh, there we are. Uh, the EU installed a monitoring force having mediated the ceasefire, and here we are. Um, summary. Um, Georgia presents a, if you will, a garden variety of post-Cold War conflict. Interstate uh, in, in its origins and in its nature it involves multiple ethnic groups uh, and their elites competing for position in conditions of weak and ineffectual state structures and a deteriorating economic situation. In addition, it evinces a disproportionate interest on the part of a neighboring major state, creating a sustained pattern of intervention. In a larger sense still, uh, the Georgian conflicts have been met by widespread indifference on the part of the rest of us. Um, so there's no real capacity to balance the effect of the neighboring power. One last point in summary, and then I'll get on, you'll be pleased to know, Chair, to international organizations. Um, May have to give the professor the benefit of, of ten more minutes. Uh, I think six. Six, good. <laughs> um, uh, I think one thing that is interesting in a sort of general sense from this experience is it indicates the perils of the implementation of the principle of national self-determination. National self-determination is, of course, a good thing, I suppose. Um, but every time it is implemented through statehood, you risk generating several follow-on claims for the same right. And that is clearly what happened in Georgia. The roles of international organizations, I will be brief. I want to get on to lessons. Right. Um, international organizations have been involved in the effort to regulate these issues since 1992. The CSCE then OSCE took the lead in South Ossetia from uh, December 1992 when they established a mission of long-term duration in uh, Georgia, one purpose of which was to observe the operations of the peacekeeping force in South Ossetia uh, to keep a watching brief on the security situation in the region and to facilitate negotiations leading to a settlement. The UN uh, also entered in 1992 uh, in the uh, uh, establishment of UNOMIG, the UN Observer Mission in Georgia, a little peacekeeping force. Um, in 1994, its mandate was changed and expanded to uh, basically monitor the activities of the parties to the conflict, to observe the Russian peacekeeping force, to facilitate talks focused on resolution. The EU the EU. At the time these conflicts broke out, the EU had no foreign policy or security personality. It has developed one, and as it has developed one, it has become increasingly engaged, not least in uh, Georgia, 
um, leading to its uh, monitoring and mediation role in 2008. Assessment. Um, international organizations have been involved in these conflicts for 17 years now. Um, they were incidental to the early ceasefires, which were essentially mo uh, mediated by the dominant power in the region, <coughs> Russia. Uh, there was no real progress towards peace during the frozen period of these conflicts. International organizations were marginalized during the resumption of conflict during 2008. It's pretty bleak. It would be wrong, by the way, to say that they were completely irrelevant. The presence of international organizations on the ground in the field had several positive effects. First of all, they did facilitate negotiations when the parties were interested in negotiations. I'll get back to that. Second, their monitoring presence in the zones of conflict uh, did reduce the risk of inadvertent resumption of hostilities. Um, they also contributed modestly to the protection of the human rights of civilians caught in the middle of all of this. And to be fair to the EU, it played a fundamentally important role in bringing the latest phase of hostilities to an end. What lessons do we draw from this experience? First of all, the autonomous role of international organizations in the pursuit of peace is distinctly limited in key respects. To state the obvious, they are made up of states. These states have different levels of interest in any given context. The interests of these states may conflict in any given context, and that constrains the capacity of multilateral organizations to uh, pursue peace effectively. In Georgia, the impact of these organizations on peace processes was limited by, one, the low policy priority for most major members of the organizations in question, uh, and that translated into an unwillingness to con commit significant diplomatic and other resources to the pursuit of peace. There were a small number of members, notably Russia, that were really interested in what was going on, who did consider Georgia a priority issue, but they were more in interested in defending their particular state interests than in pursuing a collective strategy towards peace operations. A second point concerns how these institutions work. What are their decision rules? It is interesting that in August 2008, the Security Council did not produce a resolution on the renewal of conflict in Georgia. The reason for that is very simple. One veto-bearing member of the Security Council didn't want it. Um, so the UN is constrained in its response by the veto. The OSCE is constrained by a consensus rule in decision-making. If you've got someone who's resistant to effective multilateralism as part of the supposed consensus, you don't get a consensus. And in the EU context, uh, foreign and security policy is a matter of national competence, not uh, uh, the competence of the organization. Um, so essentially, again, any effective action on the part of the EU depends significantly on consensus amongst the members. All three organizations, therefore, lead to a lowest common denominator outcome, uh, in which, uh, which, which appears to me, uh, this is going to sound awful, Jen, um, it's sort of appearing to be engaged and interested without 
really being engaged and interested. Um, thirdly, um, there's the matter of standard operating procedures in international organizations. Uh, international organizations, and particularly the UN, uh, Jochen can contradict me later, tend to offer a, a tend to uh, attempt to implement standard templates to rather specific situations to deliver standardized responses on the basis of accumulated past experience. Conflicts, on the other hand, in this part of the world as elsewhere, are the product of uh, historical, cultural, and political processes that are uh, deep and specific to the case in question, and they place a premium on case knowledge, flexibility, adaptability, innovation. The UN, I don't think, is known for significant achievement in any of those uh, areas. Um, complex bureaucracies in a larger sense tend towards standard operating procedures. They're poorly adapted to the task of pursuing peace, in contrast, in my view, to, for example, non-governmental organizations, which are much more flexible. At the end of the day, um, and fourthly, I think another lesson you draw is that uh, the contributions of international organizations to the pursuit of peace are positive when the parties to conflict want them to be. If there is no societal and political willingness on the part of those in conflict to engage seriously with the tough decisions necessary for conflict resolution, then the efforts of international organizations to pursue peace are likely to be uh, frustrated and futile. Um, <coughs> In, our, in my case, there's little evidence of success on the part of international organizations in shifting key players towards compromises necessary for durable peace. And uh, um, also little evidence that international organizations have been successful in shifting popular attitudes significantly towards the recognition that compromise is necessary for peace. <coughs> 